of the, the Bible. Really, I guess the second major section, you could argue that the first section is everything before the flood and then everything after the flood uh, up to this point, up to Babel. Uh, you've got creation, the fall, uh, you've got the flood, uh, you've got um, here with the Tower of Babel, and then next begins the patriarchal period, looking at Abraham, then Isaac, and Jacob, and his sons. Ultimately, it's the establishment of Israel, God's chosen people, his nation that he will establish uh, his presence and his covenant with. And uh, what we'll see through all of this is that God is ultimately uh, using all of these things, all of these times, circumstances, even empires, and even those who come against his own people to bring about uh, his son, the promised seed, who was promised all the way back in Genesis 3 to bring about our redemption, our reconciliation, our ultimate eternal salvation uh, in Christ Jesus, who would crush the head of the serpent. And uh, we are grateful for that victory that Christ has already given and for the victory that is promised to all who believe. So tonight, let's read verses 1 through 9, and we'll jump into verse number 5 tonight. And the whole earth was of one language, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they, should, uh, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they made brick for stone and slime they ha had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence and upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Now, you have to remember here that this is not merely that they show up and they build a couple houses around one big old tower of pizza, right? That's not the idea. They are building an entire civilization, an entire empire. And this city, like many ancient cities, would have been massive and even built up of many different complexes and other uh, areas and even other smaller cities that were attached to its, its region and area. And so when we're thinking about Babylon or as a city, uh, you and I think about one specific spot, Babylon, but we have to think that this is continuously expanding its borders. It is uh, expanding in its power and its influence. It has become the epicenter of everything, including and especially that politically, economically, and religiously. Now, this, of course, is a foreshadow and a picture of what is to come one day in the end times, and we're already beginning to see much of that uh, rumbling away and waiting for an antichrist to, who will come and unite everybody together. But you and I, as we have said a million times, and we'll say it a million times again, we're not looking for the signs of antichrist, nor are we looking for the, the man who is the antichrist. We're not looking for his identity. We are listening and awaiting the coming of Christ, the Christ, our King, who has promised to call his bride home to be with him. Now, as we look here tonight in verse 5 through 9, what we're going to see is the result of all of this rebellion that has taken place. Now, we've already seen thus far in Genesis several times where God has had to judge, hasn't he? Now, each time that God has judged, he has done so not merely righteously and with a holy fire or vengeance and wrath, as we often see or think of, but when God judges, he is also judged graciously and mercifully and lovingly because it is who he is in his very nature and character. And now we think about this, the, the many judgments that we've seen thus far. Adam and Eve. Uh, let's think about this. What was their judgment like? Was it swift, powerful, and sent them directly to hell forever? No. As a matter of fact, it was very gracious and merciful. 
even in the midst of their judgment, God righteously uh, not only judges them, but then promises to them uh, an opportunity of redemption, ultimately through the coming Messiah. Then we find uh, that one of their offspring becomes a murderer. Right? Cain murders his brother Abel. And what do we find? Does God then take Cain and send him directly to hell and do not pass go or collect $200, right? No. What does he do? He graciously preserves him and even says that if anyone comes against him and takes vengeance against him, I will do so sevenfold. Then what do we find later on? We find the sin continuously growing and 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 growing, right? We see how bad it gets to where all and every of the part of the imagination of man, of the heart of man, was evil continuously, only evil continuously. So what does God do? He graciously kills every single soul on the planet. No? He saves eight, doesn't he? Would have saved more, but more would not come. For Years and years, decade after decade, Noah is not merely building a boat, but preaching righteousness and exemplifying what righteousness is before God and before man. And what happens? No one else gets on the boat, but what gets off the boat with him and the animals? Sin. Sin still remains. And what happens is over this period of time, after the flood, after God covenants with, with Noah and his, his family, and even beyond, even to the world and creation itself, that he would not flood the world, worldwide flood that is, to destroy the world again, what happens? Sin increases and leads to folks rebelling. And as we saw last week ending off there, is that they begin to make a city. Ultimately, they're trying to make this city waterproof in a, in a way of taunting God and a way of looking and going, oh yeah, you can go ahead and bring that flood. You can bring that flood because we're ready for you now. Now what arrogance and what pride. And it certainly it shows what, what sin at its very heart and root does. Sin at its very root is nothing but pride and arrogance and even rebellion, lawlessness against God and His law, His rule, His authority. And now what we're going to see tonight in verse number 5 is the beginning of the result of all of this. Now let me ask you, what is the result of sin? Well, the Bible tells us, right? The Bible tells us over in Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. but The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now here's what we're going to find. God doesn't come down and with, his one, with, with one little finger and go and flick all of Babylon away. He could have. Matter of fact, he wouldn't even have to do that, would he? If he spoke all things into existence when there was nothing to build with, he just simply said, let there be, and then there was. He could have just simply said, let there no longer be Babylon, and there would no longer be Babylon. But what we've got to understand tonight as we see all this, is that God sovereignly allows and providentially prepares for, rebe for the rebellion of man. This is why we can ask questions, right? And we always want the answer, but we go, well, if He knew, then why did He even stick the tree in the garden in the first place? If He knew, why did He just have Abel born instead of them being twins with Cain or what have you, right? Or, uh, or you know, why did have another brother? Or why, why have any of these things, right? Why allow them to find out what... Uh, ironsmithing is and, and making swords and knives and killing each other. Why, why, why do any of that? The Lord knew all of these things and yet made things as He made them. And notice, after the creation, after each single day, He says, and it was good. Why? Because it was good for man. So where did all these things come from? Let me ask you. Are knives a bad thing? No. But they can be used badly right 
Um, we, we can think about that with nearly everything in life. Are cars bad? No. Can they be used bad? Yes. Right? So we see all of these things. What makes them be used badly? Not the hand of God, the hand of man. And so man's sin and rebellion takes what God has given to us for our good and corrupts it. As we talked about, what does the devil do? He imitates and he infiltrates. So God says, here's a car. This is for man's good to get him to point A to point B and even to point C. He can use all sorts of things with it. He can even paint it and make it his own and stick nice little license plate and stickers on the back, right? That's neat. That's a good thing. And then what does the devil do? He goes, I think you should get drunk and drive that thing. God doesn't say that. The devil does. Man says yes. We think about this. Kim and I were visiting her family in, uh, in Lexington, North Carolina, and got the news alert on my phone that just 30 minutes from my hometown, there in Charlottesville, that someone had taken a car and ran over all kinds of people. Right? Y'all remember that a few years back? Protests and all that stuff. Both sides were in the wrong, by the way. And with all this, what happens? People died. Because of a car? No, not because of a car. Because someone decided to take a car and to use it for what it's not intended to be used for. Because there was hatred. Because there was sinfulness. Because there was pride and arrogance and all of these things. Rebellion. Now what we're going to see here in verse 5 is that God now comes down to deal with this sin. Because sin will only go for so long. While God allows sinners to sin because that's their very nature to do so, He will only allow it to go for so long. Now this is why we must understand as well with man's sinfulness is that man is not as sinful as he could be. Would you agree? Now think about this. You and your sin, right, before you were lost, uh, before you were saved, right, when you were lost, in your sins and trespasses, you were not as sinful as you could have been. Right? Even the worst and vilest uh, in the world could, were not as sinful as they could have been. It is the restraining power of God's grace and mercy. We're going to look a little bit into it this Sunday where we see that evil can go and run rampant, but as the psalmist talks about, it will only go but for so long of a time period, and it will only go but so far in its uh, atrocities before God says, enough! Right? You think about when you were a little child, you're running around acting like a fool. Well, you're really not even acting like a fool. You're just acting like a kid, right? That's all you know. And what happens is little by little, right? Mom or dad begin to raise up. Hey, you just stop. Uh-huh, okay, right? <clears throat> right, you're still running around, still acting crazy. And then keep going, keep going, keep going. And then eventually what happens? Stop! Oh, got it. Yeah, that might not have been you. You might have been a perfect kid, right? But you've seen the ones in Walmart, haven't you? Walmart food line, they're going, they're going, they're going, they're, they're pushing the same button just to see how many times they can push the button, and then what happens? Enough! Right? Here's what we see. God allows sinners to sin. He allows them to go off in it as far until He says enough is enough. And that's what happens here. And that's what's going to happen one of these days as well. You and I right now as we await for the Lord's return, here's what we do. We often go, how long, O Lord? Now, to be honest, I don't think that that's a bad mentality because we should be longing for Christ's return. We should be longing to, to be delivered from this mortal flesh and this sinful world and to be delivered into that which is immortal and everlasting and eternal and good and pure. So we should have that mentality of waiting for that. 
But what we're going to see here is that that day is coming. It is our assurance. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. Now this is interesting. I have the word here, condescension. God, if you will, anthropomorphically giving us this word to sort of this, this phrase to look. Let me ask you, does God have to come down and walk around the tower and the city and the town to get a feel for what, what's going on there? No, not a bit. He doesn't have to step off the throne for a moment to know everything that's happening at every molecule and atom across the universe. He knows every single, every particle that there ever has been in the past, ever will be in the future. He knows every bit of it. He doesn't have to leave the throne to go figure out and go, whoa, what is going on down here, right? None of that. God is not seeking information that is new to him. God is not seeking to learn something. God is not seeking to try to put his finger on what's going on down there. He knows every bit of it. But I believe here he gives us verse 5 for our benefit. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Now go back with me to verse 4. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. They thought they done built themselves something, didn't they? They thought we done made us a city. We done made us a tower. We are somebody. God's going, you made a tower and a city? I can't even see it from up here. i got to come down there to take a look at this thing. Now, does God really have to go down there and take a look at it that way in order to see it? No, but it's showing the condescension of which it is nothing. As, as later on in the Old Testament tells us, I believe in Isaiah, that the nations are as a drop in a bucket to God. He, he's looking at Babel. He's looking at their tower. He's looking at their, at their civilization that they've built, and they've got this big city and all these people, a, a booming population and economy and commerce and all these things. And he goes, it's nothing. And I'm about to show you that. And this is why we've got to be careful. Because as we see, every single empire that ever has been has all, always fallen. Matter of fact, we're on the last stages of how long empires, civilizations normally last here in America. They normally don't go much more past 200 years. We're, we're past that now. And so you go, how much longer? We don't know. We don't want that to happen, first of all, right? I don't want that to happen. Nevertheless, what we find is that you look at every place in the world, civilizations and nations, they rise and they fall, and God remains unbothered because He's God. These nations, these people, these civilizations, they are dropping a bucket and they serve His purposes for all time all of those who build themselves up will in the end fall as great of a society that they had built god had to come down to see it the idea shows the irony that they thought that they were large in their own eyes though the eyes of god viewed them as a drop in a bucket hear what it means the word to see it means to inspect to perceive uh to 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 sort of weigh out and to look right to consider it's like he goes down and he looks and he inspects it and he goes, this is nothing but wickedness. We think about much the same later on when we see Abraham trying to keep him from uh, destroying all of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and, and Abraham goes, well, what if there's 50 good, good well, I won't destroy, what if there's 45, 40, 35, 30, 30, right? I mean, all, the whole down, right? All the way down to where he's like, if there's anybody, God says, okay. He looks down and all that's there is, is Lot. What we find is that God sees every motive of every heart, 
He sees the wickedness. He sees the rebellion. And he will only let it go for so long. And what we find here is Sorensen writes an anthropomorphism of God is used. He did not need to actually go down and see what was going on. He already knew. However, the Holy Spirit chose to portray him doing so doing. Perhaps to convey his likeness to mankind and that a man would investigate a matter, God noted their united effort in their common language as well. Notice in verse number six, and the Lord said, behold, the, the people is one. They all have one language and this they begin to do and nothing and now nothing will uh, be restrained from them, uh, which they have imagined. We'll get to that in just a moment. But the Godhead observes and acts in this passage, much like in creation. All actions of God are a divine and intentional action by all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We talked about this past Sunday. Now, what we find here is that God examines the heart of the people much as he did there in Genesis 6 to describe how wicked the people had become. You go back to Genesis 6, we see God looks down and inspects the people. He inspects all of the civilization and looks. He goes, well, Noah has found grace in my sight. He's righteous and blameless before me. Uh, so him and his faith. He alone, everyone else, wicked, evil, only evil thoughts of their imagination is continuously evil, right? Every bit of them, saturated in it. So what we find is that as the Bible teaches us from Genesis Revelation, that it is God who searches the heart and knows the mind of each individual. This is both a, a humbling thing and a comforting thing. A fearful thing and a faith-producing thing. For the believer, it gives us hope and, and confidence and trust. The Lord knows our motives even when we don't, and even when others don't, or even when others falsely accuse us of having wrong motives. We know the Lord knows, and ultimately we give account to Him, and that's it. I want to give you a, a little bit of what Proverbs tells us about this. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21 and 23, I'll read for us. Proverbs 5, 21 through 23. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his goings. Now, let me pause for a moment. When you and I hear the word ponder, we think about how you and I ponder about things. When you and I go to pondering, what are we, what are we doing? We're trying to figure something out, ain't we? We're pondering things. We're mulling it over. God isn't pondering to try to figure out something. The idea is here is that the ways of men are before his eyes and he pondereth his goings. He thinks about his goings. He knows his goings. He knows every bit of his goings. He knows, uh, he knows where man is going before man even knows where he's going, right? The passage goes on. He says, His own iniquity shall take the wicked himself and he shall be holden with the cords of sin. He shall die without instruction and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. There, those last two verses of Proverbs 5 seem to perfectly describe what's going to happen to the people of Babylon and ultimately one day to all those who have practiced the religion of spiritual Babylon, which is anti-biblical, anti-Christian, anti-God. It is satanic in its very root in ideology and theology. It is a man-centered theology. It is a man-worshiping theology. It is a self-worshiping theology. It is a theology that makes God small and man large. It is a theology that says God is not truly God, or rather we can make God after our own image and our own likeness. And he says that they will die without instruction and the greatness of his folly shall go astray. That's what's about to happen here to Babel. As we move forward, we see the confounding that takes place here in verse 6 and 7. Uh, he sees this observation that the people is one, right? Now, it's not that there's only one family, but they're one in unity. They're united together against God. They're united together in rebellion. They're united together in their commerce, their, their spiritual condition, their theology. Uh, they are uh, united together uh, politically. They are united together in all facets of life. They're all working together for what you and I hear all the time, the greater good, right? 
The greater good sounds good to those who are getting the good out of the, out of the deal, right? Now, with all this, what we see, he goes and he notices, he says, they all have one language, and this they begin to do. Now, nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down. I find that interesting, of course, to let us. Who's the us, right? They're talking about the Godhead, right? This is dealing with, with Christ and the Holy Spirit as much as it is dealing with God the Father. Much as we see in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man, right? So here's what we find. God says this, that they have united themselves together against me. Not merely just united themselves together, but united themselves together against me. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Meaning, their minds put together, united in sinfulness, even into the debauchery of the, uh, of the satanic and demonic influence that is progressing their society for the greater good. Yet, ultimately, he, he looks and he goes, they'll keep going and going and going. And there's nothing that's going to stop them. Except for him. Hamilton says this, that note that God does not halt the project while it is in process of construction, nor does He destroy it once it is completed. What God does is to judge the language, not the tower or the city, the people's tongues, and not their hands feel the wrath of God. This gives rise to the name Babel, which means in Hebrew to confound or confuse. The Babylonians themselves call their city Babylai or Babylonai, uh, gate of the gods, which is reflected of the Greek Babylon. Now, here's what's interesting. They believe themselves to be something, whereas God looks and he says, Babel. No, no, that just means confused, confounded. It means that you're nothingness. It means you're, you're worthless even. Now, he's going to take a people that are united together with one language, and that's what has helped them progress into their unity together. And what does he do? Confound that language. Now they can't talk to each other like they once could, which means now there's arguments, there's disagreements, there's misunderstandings. There's now this group doesn't understand that group. So now this group stays together and this group stays together. And now all these nations begin to develop into what we have today even. Furthermore, Kidner writes, Babel or Babylon called itself Babylai, gate of God, which may have been a flattering reinterpretation of its original meaning. But by a play of words, Scripture superimposes the truer label Balal, he confused. In the Bible, this city increasingly came to symbolize the godless society with its pretensions. Genesis 11, uh, persecutions in Daniel 3, pleasures, sins, and superstitions in Isaiah 47, its riches and eventual doom in Revelation 17 and 18. One of its glories was its huge ziggurat or tower, if you will, a temple-crowned artificial mountain whose name Etamanachi uh, uh, suggested the linking of heaven and earth, but it was her sins that reached unto heaven, Revelation 18.5. In Revelation, she is contrasted with the holy city which come down out of heaven whose open gates unite the nations. Here's what's interesting. The people of Babylon believed as they built this tower and the civilization, the city, that they are having heaven and earth touch together. Everyone on earth is looking for a heavenly experience. But there is no true heaven on this earth. Not until a new heaven and a new earth is created and descends in the new city of Jerusalem, where the Lord himself dwells for his people. Until Revelation 21 and 22. Until then, heaven is not here. What we find is that what seems to be here is a much more hellish place than anything. For you and I as believers, earth is the closest to hell as we will ever be. But for those who do not know Christ right now, Earth is the closest to heaven that they will ever be. And what an awful reality that that is. Here's what we find is that these folks believed 
that they were able to reach down by their own work and power and bring heaven down to the earth and meet it together. I want you to know the only time, if you will, that heaven has met with earth is when Jesus Christ was incarnate. When Jesus Christ put on flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is it. And what we find is this, that there is this such a desire for us to earn our way and get our way to heaven and to have a heavenly experience. And here's the danger, because much of modern Christianity today that truly is not as Christian as it claims to be, believes and promotes that we will make uh, the return of Christ happen by making better, uh, making a better world, and then Christ will come. Or that we will cause revivals and miracles and wonders to take place, and then Christ will come. My Bible still tells me that in the last days, in the end days, evil men and seducers shall, shall wax worse and worse. That there will be more and more and more sin and lawlessness and rebellion and reprobate minds at work. That the prince and power of the air will still yet be in control of things and manipulating things and infiltrating things and making his own God a society that is antagonistic to God and to His plan. You and I are not promised to bring in worldwide revivals that then Christ will come and go, oh wow, hey, thanks for cleaning up the place, now I'll show up. Matter of fact, we find that things get worse, He brings judgment, and then He comes and says, I'll take it from here. He sets up His kingdom, His millennial kingdom, which, where He will rule and reign. And as we press on, what we find is that he says in verse 7, Go to, let us go down now and confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. God confounds the languages in order to send them out to do what His command was in the first place, to replenish the earth. This gives me some confidence that this, right? Even though this civilization, as wicked and vile and rebellious as they were, God says, still got plans for them. Now, it does not mean that all these folks came to know the Lord and began to call upon His name. Matter of fact, all these nations that are going to come out of it are going to be godless nations except for the people of Israel. Now, here's what we see. Is that out of this, though, God says, though y'all meant this for evil, I'm going to use it for good. That God had said that uh, as He commanded to Noah and to his family and to, to everyone else after the flood, go to all the world and repopulate it, replenish the earth. And they say, nope. Matter of fact, they said in verse number four, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Meaning, we don't want to be separated. We don't want to go to the whole earth. We want to stay right here in the best land, the best location, and make the best civilization that there is. We want to make us a name. We want to be somebody. We want to make us a place. We want to do our own plan. We want to have our own will. We want to have our own way. God says, all right, well, good luck with that. Because I'm still going to have my way. It's a whole lot better to go ahead and get along with God's plan than it is to fight Him. God will still have His way regardless. Now God shows in His speech here that man in his sinfulness and skill is able to do nearly anything that they set out to do except, of course, thwart His rule. Notice the progression of technology throughout the Bible. We see early in Genesis chapter 4 that there's music makers, there's instruments, there's blacksmithing, they're making all sorts of tools and resources. You and I think about these early uh, these folks who lived so long ago as, you know, Neanderthal, knuckle dragger, cavemen. Uh, maybe they did live in caves, but they certainly weren't living like cavemen without brains. They were incredibly logical, thoughtful, precise. You ever looked at, um, at the pictures of the pyramids in Egypt, for example, right? 
Have you ever noticed how smooth they were? In fact, at one point in time, uh, of course, throughout all the erosion, they say that they were absolutely as smooth as glass. That's wild to think about. They didn't have DeWalt and Craftsman, right? They didn't have uh, laser measurements like we've got now. Uh, they couldn't call up uh, Marty to do some welding for them, right? They, they didn't have none of those things. They had their brains. They had their tools. And yet they built monuments that are still standing. You'd make a building that we built back in 1900, right? Downtown or somewhere, or a barn. And we've built it with modern technology. And you drive around Carroll County or even Hillsville and you can go, boy, that building looks rough. Boy, that house looks rough. Boy, that barn is dilapidated, right? And a thing's only, you know, 80 years old, maybe 30 years old in some cases. You go, well, how's that? Boy, they knew what they were doing. Now, it's hard to imagine or fathom what kind of technology they had, but think about this. Think about the progression of what man has been capable of in the past 100 years. 100 years ago, up here in Hillsville, about this many people had cars. You know why? Because there weren't many roads. There was no need for a car. So once roads start coming and cars start coming, okay, now cars then progress all the more, right? Don't they? What do you, you remember your first car? Who's got the oldest first car in here? What's, what was yours? 61, still got it. All right. Anyone had an older one than that for first car? Yes, ma'am. Woo, all right. Any, any older than that for first one? 55, oh man. All right, anything before that was just horse and buggy and that don't count, right? Now you think, all of those, those are antiques now, ain't they, right? Matter of fact, my first truck, my first car was an 88 S10. When I had it and I was driving at 16 years old, it was already about to be an antique, right? I had a Redskins magnet on the side of it and it sat in the sun so long it just, meld, it just welded itself on there. Door handle always fell off. It was, I describe it as a rusty blue color, right? It was beautiful. Name was, his name was Rufus, in case you were wondering. <laughs> Loved that truck, right? Now, you think, hey, y'all laugh. That truck won her heart 10 years ago tomorrow, okay? So y'all say what you want. It worked out, okay? <laughs> I still ain't got the truck, but I still got the girl. <laughs> now, we think about this. My little S10, though it was an 88 and a whole lot, younger and newer than a 55, a 58, and a 61. Think about a car now. The bells, the whistles, everything else. Now, think about the progression that things took place in 20, 30 years. How about this? I remember, I, was still, I came in our part of the generation that grew up without technology or computers and cell phones and things like that. And then remember as these things started getting introduced, I remember when my dad got a beeper. And I was like, what is that thing, Right? Couldn't understand the concept of a beeper, right? You, I still remember the, the corded phones and rotary, the whole thing, right? I remember seeing pay phones and you could still smoke inside a restaurant. I mean, times were different. Think of the progress in things that we've made and yet have we really progressed? But what we find is that when man, with his mind and intelligence, and I would even add with this, some demonic influence, and what do we have? The technology of today. Now, I'm not saying go home and burn your television because it's demonic, all right? I'm not going to call it a Satan box tonight. I'm going to you know, probably go home and watch, uh, watch something myself. But nevertheless, here, here's what I'm saying. Is that technology has progressed. Imagine the things that they were capable of. Imagine the things that we are capable of. Imagine if God's hand 
Stop restraining us from our sinfulness. And we just went hog wild. And look at how quickly our world has turned and changed. And not for the better. In ten years, in five years, things have changed so dramatically. Technologically, politically, socioeconomically, religiously. Uh, I mean, you name it. Certainly the same was for their society. Sorensen writes, it is not that God could not restrain them from anything they would imagine to do. Rather, and more likely, no longer could the godly minority restrain them from such impudent folly. You ever felt like that, believer? You just go, well, what can I do? The world just gets worse and worse around me. Here's what we can do. We can pray and we can preach. And that's about it. Other than that, we can wait for the Lord's return. But here's the thing. While we wait for the Lord's return, we better be praying. We better be preaching. Waiting for the Lord's return does not mean waiting for the Lord's return and going like this and pretending nothing's happening. It means praying and preaching the good news of Christ. Because there is a day that that door is going to be shut to all others. He, Sorensen continues, he says, Therefore God took steps to thwart man's pride and folly. God's plan was for mankind to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Implied is that God's plan was for mankind to spread out and inhabit the entire earth. The planned tower of, of at Babel was a direct violation of his expressed will. Going on, we see the confounding of their language and scattering of the people abroad shows God's sovereignty and grace. One, it shows that ultimately God is in control. No matter what man does, God is in control. Two, it displays His grace and that if they were not scattered, they would have continued headlong in their depraved, sinful rebellion. Meaning, God is gracious to judge in this way because if He doesn't imagine the progress that they make in their sin. What an awful thought, right? Thank God for His restraining grace. The scattering now takes place with those that speak the same language, but the scattering will also go the, with them the pagan idolatry or what we've called the mystery religion. Throughout the world, the practice of mystery religion remains, increases in practice, and its evidence is seen in the ancient ruins throughout the world that point back to Babel. There are pyramids, as we talked about, every continent that has been used for mystery religion of Babel worship, ceremonies, political systems, we think about the, the obelisks. If you don't know what an obelisk is, it's this. It's the, uh, the, the Washington Monument. Right? It's the tower. Right? The, these were symbols used in pagan worship and idolatry. They're seen throughout the world. Now with all this, here's what we find. Is that physical Babylon here is scattered, but what else is scattered? Spiritual Babylon. Spiritual Babylon is scattered and goes throughout the rest of the world much like sin gets off the ark and continues to go and spread abroad. And what we find is that ultimately, here's what's going to happen. Spiritual Babylon has, is spread throughout the entire globe right now, but it's going to unify itself together under a coming Nimrod, if you will, the Antichrist. And the world will come back together under not merely just a spiritual Babylon, but a physical and a literal Babylon, which will be a, a civilization that will, thwart, or will attempt to thwart God's plan they will build themselves and make themselves a name that will go against God's name and against Him, ultimately against the Lamb that they will curse there in Revelation as He rains down judgment upon them. That day is coming. Phillips writes, The Lord descended in judgment upon the scene. That was their mistake. They had ruled God out of their thinking, thereby imagined they had rid themselves of Him, only to find at last that His answer to such folly is swift and lasting judgment. God has never permitted men to realize a lasting social order from which He is excluded, nor will He do so in the end. So in the end times picture here, what we find is that spiritual Babylon will rise again, a physical Babylon will rise again, led by the Antichrist, a picture that Nimrod was 
a global, globalization, unification together, and there will be a coming swift destruction much like takes place here. Ultimately, everything would come to a screeching halt. He says, Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Here's what we find when we bring this to a close tonight. God's plan continues to show the bigger and greater picture of what He was doing then, now, and in the future. You didn't realize there was so much end times material in the book of Genesis, did you? Right? When we look at Genesis and we see that it is a picture of what was to come and is to come yet still. Now what we find is that God will step in to crush the revived Babylonian empire that the Antichrist will be ruling over as Nimrod once did. The Lord will crush her and all practitioners of her misreligion. God Himself will build a truer and perfect city in Revelation 21 and 22 where all in Christ will be united together with the Lord. Here's how I want to close tonight. I just want to read Scripture to you just simply. Revelation 18, verse 21 tells us this. Revelation 18, 21. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. Notice that. Not just no more. But no more at all. Right? It, uh, it, it's this idea of, of a permanency. He goes on. And he says, And the voice of the harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. No craftsman or whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee, and the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. What is that? What's the bridegroom and the bride? Right? Think about that. Now, here we go. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by their sorceries were all nations deceived. Notice that. Who is the great dece deceiver? Well, we say the, the, the devil. He is an adversary. He is a deceiver. Yes, absolutely. And who has he worked through? Much as God has worked through Israel and His church, the devil has worked through Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, and through spiritual Babylon and her wicked mystery religion. And the nations are being deceived and have been deceived and will be deceived because of her great whoredoms. He says, and in, in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. You want to know who kills Bible-believing Christians? Catholics have. Muslims have. But ultimately, both are the same practitioner of the same religion. Mr. Religion. Babylonian religion. Satanic practice. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. I plan on being there, by the way. This is where the hallelujah chorus comes from. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments. For He hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of His servants at her hand. And again, they said, Hallelujah! And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God and they that sat upon the throne and God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye His servants and ye that fear Him, both small and great. 
And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters, as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Right? There's your hallelujah chorus there. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteous of saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See, thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. Who else is called Faithful and True? Well, Jesus was, back in chapter 1, Faithful and True. And it says, And in righteousness doth he, make, doth he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and his head were as many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon, the white, horse, upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he shall smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at chapter 21. There we see chapter 18 and 19, Babylon, physical and spiritual especially, being destroyed and judged. The final judgment there at the end of chapter 20, the great white throne judgment for all those who did not know Christ, who rejected Him, who rebelled against Him and His rule. What do we find? Verse 20, chapter 21, verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Later on we see this. And I saw in verse 22, no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut all the day, for there is no night there. For there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the promised place for you and I. We don't look for an earthly city. We look like Abraham for a city whose builder and maker is God. What we find here as we've studied Babylon is what we've seen is this, that there in Genesis 11, we are told of a great and terrible civilization that rebelled against God and they were judged for it. But we are reminded and instructed about all the sinfulness and the wickedness and wicked theology that has been practiced and believed and deceived the nations from then until now. But we are promised as well as that God will not be mocked. 
He will deal with sin. He will deal with rebellion. But He will also deal with His saints. And He will bring about great joy forever and forever to enter into a city that He has built where His name is glorified and known. Notice it's the total opposite of Babylon. Babel said, let us make us a city, a tower, and a name. And for you and I who are written in the Lamb's book of life, what do we have? God makes a city, doesn't make a temple because He's sitting there and the Lamb is sitting there. There's no need of the sun or the moon because the Lamb is a light thereof. And what do we find? You and I don't make this city or name, but that His name is placed upon our foreheads, that His name is placed upon that city, that we are represented in a union with the Lord our God forever and forever. So let Babylon continue to make her harlotry and fornications. May we live today until Christ returns to preach the Word, live rightly before the Lord, awaiting His return and awaiting patiently faithfully the promise of his coming city where we will dwell with him forever let's pray Lord, we love you we're grateful that we could look to your word and study uh, about all of these things lord that we could look and, and see the atrocities and the sinfulness there in babel but as well in the spiritual babylon that is all around us lord help us to not be um to be uh, changed or, or transformed by it, but rather to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and by Your Word, Lord, so that we could go into this world that we are called to live into right now, Lord, and to preach Your Word, to be salt and light into this world so that we might see others rescued from sin and from hell and from the enemy. And Lord, that they might be reconciled to You so that they too might have the promise as we have tonight that one day we shall be with You, be called home to be with You, and be brought into a city that you are the builder and maker of so that we will dwell in your presence in peace forevermore. Lord, help us to long and look forward to that day and to live for that, that coming of Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all. Hey, just a reminder too, in case you forgot,